Thank you, um, and good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this program, which is the third in a series of three programs about impairment. Uh, the first two um, addressed um, impaired clients. Um, this one is a little bit more close to home, I guess, for a lot of us, which is how you deal with an impaired colleague, which is an, an issue that has received increasing attention um, in recent years that we have all focused on issues concerning lawyer well-being. Um, I'm Joe Berman. I'm the general counsel of the Board of Bar Overseers. Uh, it's a position I've held um, for over three years now, coming up on four years. Uh, prior to that, I was in private practice and, and was a commercial litigator. The other two folks on our panel um, this afternoon, first is Ellen Messing, who is a partner in the Newton Law Firm of Messing, Rudovsky, and Wolecki. Um, she concentrates her practice in representing employees in all areas of employment litigation. She has twice co-chaired the Boston Bar Association Ethics Committee, and for 15 years has co-chaired the National Employment Lawyers Association Ethics Committee. She has also co-chaired the Massachusetts Bar Association Labor and Employment Law Section and served as National Secretary of the National Employment Lawyers Association. She has been a Massachusetts super lawyer for many years and has been in Boston Magazine Super Lawyer Top 50 Women Lawyer in Massachusetts. So Ellen, it's great to have you. Also on our panel rounding out um, our uh, triumvirate here this afternoon is Barbara Bowe. Barbara is a clinician at LCL, Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers, um, where she's been since 1996. She works with law students, lawyers, and runs specialty groups for students and attorneys. She has facilitated a group for lawyers in trouble with the BBO for the past 18 years. In addition to Barbara's work with LCL, she maintains a private practice in Brookline and is um, well versed in issues concerning wellness uh, and mental health issues confronting lawyers. So we're gonna um, really focus this program around some hypothetical questions that will provide a launching pad for some discussion and discussion of the rules. Um, but before we do that, I wanna give Barbara a few minutes, um, an opportunity to speak for a few minutes about LCL and some of the services that they provide. I alluded to it earlier, but um, Barbara, why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about LCL and what you guys do? So thanks, Joe. Thanks, and thanks the BBA for the opportunity to present today. Could we see a screenshot of the LCL website? Great, thank you. So I, I just wanna show this briefly. This is what the LCL website looks like. And from here on out, it's going to be the address for this will be located in the chat. So we are, we are a service that provides free confidential services to law students, lawyers, and judges in the Commonwealth. We provide a range of programs and services from assessment and referral work related to some clinical matters, as well as low map services with field with um, law practice management issues. We have a lot of material in terms of programs, articles, um, podcasts that you should avail yourself to. Considering the fact that this is a service that you help fund, I think it's important to be aware and, and knowledgeable about our services. The other thing to understand about the LCL services is that the services are totally confidential. We, um, we are under an umbrella in terms of the SJC where we have no reporting mechanism in terms of lawyers who come who are in trouble either with practice issues, IOLTA issues, missing statu uh, deadlines or whatever in terms of client work. So it's important to understand that we're, we're relegated and it's sort of a different category from that. The only limits for anything related to confidentiality have to do with our licenses, myself as a social worker and the three psychologists who work at LCL related to child abuse, elder abuse and self-harm issues. Other than that, everything else is confidential unless a lawyer wants us to speak to someone on his or her behalf. Thanks. And thanks, Barbara. Um, Appreciate that. And we'll, like you said, we'll put that in the chat so everybody has the LCL information, but it's available obviously on their well, your website um, as well. So as I mentioned, we're gonna do this presentation for the next several minutes by way of a hypothetical situation. So um, Ellen, why don't you, um, I guess we should bring up the slides and you can introduce the hypo. Sure.
So um, we thought it would be most helpful to talk about impaired colleagues and we're gonna be focusing on impaired lawyers by uh, walking through the kinds of situations that can develop in, in law firms when we see our friends, our colleagues, uh, our superiors, our subordinates um, experiencing situations that um, may call for responses from those that surround them or when uh, we ourselves as lawyers are experiencing challenges in practicing law that may call for a variety of responses, whether responses from Barbara's program, the Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers, responses uh, that live inside the disciplinary rules um, or a variety of responses. And we're gonna talk through those, those responses uh, through some situations that, that we see um, we can see with a, uh, an actual case. So um, let's suppose that you um, have a friend. Let's suppose you work in the big firm, a law firm, and let's suppose that you have a friend, Ashley Associate, that you uh, went through school together, you're working together, which you're very happy about because uh, you and Ashley are friends. You have survived the rigors of the early years of uh, being associates. You're now senior associates. And she has always uh, done terrifically well. And she's going to be up for partner next year. She reports to Peter Partner. He's the head of his department. And all things are looking good um, for Ashley. Um, Recently, um, as at most firms or many firms, there have been a lot of pressures on the firm. Um, there have been retrenchments, there have been, there's been a salary freeze, partners have shown a lot of stress. Uh, as people have been working from home, there have been tech disruptions, there have been a fair amount of inefficiencies, and that is worn on everyone. Um, and at first you thought that's all that was going on um, with Ashley, but it seems lately that her performance has slipped. Uh, her written work isn't quite as sharp. She's billing fewer hours. There's some internal deadlines she's been missing, but she still seems herself. She's pleasant. Um, Clients like her, her colleagues get along with her. So, but there's no question um, that there is a change. So does this raise any issues? Uh, what, you're her friend. Um, what, what, if anything, do you think is uh, going on? Uh, what should you do? Um, and let's start with a situation where you are her friend, you're her peer uh, in, um, in, in the firm. And let's, we can start with Barbara. Um, when you, let me just ask this question. So in terms of, you're asking about how to proceed in terms of dealing with Ashley? Yes. So a couple things to think about, right? It depends, inter, inter intervening in some way, shape or form with Ashley, I think oftentimes has a lot to do with what the culture is in terms of the firm and whether this is encouraged, supported um, and thought of as a good thing to do or whether lawyers are encouraged to not do that for a variety of different reasons. So I always think about it in terms of looking at it through that lens. What is the culture of the firm in terms of the willingness to step up, ask questions, ex explore the obvious sort of difficulties that it appears Ashley's having. That would be one thing I would think about. Joe? Yeah, I mean, I think if we're talking about people who are 
you know, at the same level to use a, a broad phrase, you know, as an associate, and this is, you know, your spin on it is, you know, that you, this is the, the person that you're asking about is known um, Ashley since law school. So they've got a long relationship. It might be, you know, a little bit different if it was just colleagues who met, you know, through work, they just happened to, you know, work as associates together at the same firm and they're somewhat friendly. Um, there are no ethical issues. Um, triggered by this. Um, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about Peter Partner in a little bit, but th there are no ethical issues. I think, you know, so what you're really talking about is more an issue of professionalism in a general sense and the relationship between lawyers, you know, sort of at the same level at a law firm. And I think, you know, that that's way above my pay grade. Um, I think that's really for Barbara um, to talk about, about how you, you know, really approach somebody who you think might have some issues, but, or might be facing something that's troubling, but, you know, there are no, you know, glaring red lights flashing that say this person is, is in real trouble. So I hate to throw it back to Barbara, but really, I mean, this is really, I guess, Barbara, an issue for each person sort of on an individual basis to sort of figure out how you deal with somebody, whether it's somebody you've known for, you know, 15 years since you went to law school together, or whether you've only known them for you know, four or five years as you've been associates in this law firm. Right. I, I, and, and how do you raise, how do you raise what's obviously a difficult issue to raise? And you're not even sure that your, your, your assessment of this person is correct. You could be blowing this totally out of proportion. Well, Joe, thank, thanks for throwing it back in my court because no problem. originally when, when, um, when I responded to this, I was thinking that, you know, there are plenty of lawyers, um, that I've worked with over the years who are, have been hesitant to explore some of these, um, these areas because of the culture of the firm that says, don't do this, right? Like, this is an HR function. And then there, and then it, it depends. So I think that the culture of the firm makes big time sense in terms of the influence it has. And that aside, I think if I had a relationship with Ashley and I had known her since law school, I would be inclined to inquire and I'd be like, look, how are things going? It's, it seems like, um, it's see, I would always want to comment on what is obvious, right? Gee, you seem really tired or you seem like you're a little bit overwhelmed or you seem like um, you're having a difficult time. And I would always want to speak in sort of generalities about that and let Ashley herself fill in the blanks. So I would not want to assume I know more than I actually do. So I think it's always important to be able to comment on what is most obvious and then sort of see what Ashley does in response to that. Let me, let me give kind of an alternative um, perspective on this. Um, we, repre we have represented a fair number of lawyers, associates and junior lawyers in law firms. And uh, one thing that, that can happen is, is, the, uh, is feeling um, at, at the early stages of difficulties in the um, employee-employer relationship is sort of the, the flip side of what Barbara's talking about, which is uh, overly inquisitive, uh, um, reactions from, from colleagues. And, and that's just something to bear in mind as well. Um, I mean, one thing that could be going on with uh, Ashley is, you know, Wednesday. Um, in other words, nothing. Um, for example, Ashley suspects she's not going to make partner and she's job hunting. And that's what her energy is going into. Or she's decided big firm is not the life for her. She wants a different kind of career. She doesn't feel she's being treated well by big firm in some fashion. Or um, she may be dealing, uh, especially these days, with some issue of personal or family illness or, or you know, something else is going on um, in, in her, her life. And or um, and I, these are all um, these are all things that that I've seen. Um, or uh, one really scary thing that might be happening is she has committed some kind of uh, legal error 
that she's desperately trying to cover up. And um, in your dual capacity as an employee of the law firm um, and her friend, um, she is not gonna be able, she may not feel comfortable telling you about any of those things. And one of the most important things you may be able to say to somebody in that position is if you're their friend is, even if you can't talk to me about this, you know, um, it would be really great if you could, if you talked to, to, you know, maybe there's nothing going on, but if you can't talk to me about this, maybe it'd be good if you talk to somebody outside the firm, outside big firm about it. I, I, can, can I just jump in here too for a minute? Sure. And, and let's say this, if we were to fan this out and we were to talk about this in terms of present day circumstances and, and life during the time of COVID, we could make a whole bunch of different assumptions about what might be going on with Ashley based on what's gone on for the last year in terms of Zoom fatigue and, it's, and the struggles that some folks are having trying to navigate the intersection between work and home life. And so I think from, a, from an engagement standpoint, you always wanna sort of demonstrate that as her friend, her colleague, somebody she went to law school with, that you're open and available to a conversation and then see what her response is. Because it, it could be, as Ellen says, it could be Wednesday or it could be more than that. So let's move on to Peter well, Parker. Can I, can I just, before, before we move on, um, and I hate to delay us or, or make us dawdle here for a little bit, but Barbara, I think it might be helpful at this point. Um, you know, the SJC issued its report a couple of years ago on lawyer well-being, and there was a national report. And, you know, we don't, I don't, we obviously don't have time to go into all of it, but can you, I think it would be helpful for the audience to sort of highlight at a very high level, kind of the, the main sort of well-being issues that confront lawyers as opposed to others in the in society or other professionals. I know we talk about burnout and you know the suicide rate is is pretty high and, and addiction issues are high. Can you talk a little bit about that for a couple of minutes? Just things that everybody should be thinking about as you're looking at a friend or a colleague who seems to be their behaviors and conduct seems different than it was, you know, six months ago or a year ago. Well, what should we be looking for? Well I think there's a there's a couple of things to think about, right? And and we want to put this in the context of as colleagues and as lawyers, you're not in a position to diagnose. So we wanna be really clear about that because I think sometimes people get in over their skis when they make attempts at sort of trying to diagnose what they see or what they believe might be going on. So one of the things that we understand in terms of the practice of law is that it's incredibly stressful. And especially now, it's, um, it's, it's even more incredibly stressful, I think. So one of the things that lawyers really struggle with are issues around performance problems, right? And they're concerned about being able to be seen as exacting and, um, and, and knowledgeable on multiple fronts. And, and I think part of what happens is lawyers are often very good, zealous advocates for their clients but really have trouble when it comes to themselves, their own needs, their own wants, and sort of how to take better care of themselves. So that's one of the things that was really unearthed in terms of the ABA study that showed that lawyers have a difficult time asking for help. Some of it relates to sort of their self-esteem, their self-worth, their perception of how they view themselves in the context of what they do. And the fact that they are trained as problem solvers for others, and oftentimes are tremendously good at that, but really have some struggles around problem solving and asking for help or suggestions or, or consultation for themselves. Um, and, and it oftentimes can snowball into issues related to untreated mental health problems, related to anxiety disorders, depression, mood irregularity, and abuse and abuse of substances. And so what happens oftentimes is that this need to sort of see, seem to have everything together oftentimes results in lawyers avoiding, neglecting, putting off, attending to issues, problems, concerns 
that they really do need to address. And this is, again, another great function about the LCL that we can provide some consultation and help lawyers to really look at, uncover and unearth what some of these issues are and to help them develop a game plan to address them directly. And if, if I were a partner or an associate in a law firm and I was concerned about another lawyer, could I call LCL not for my own sake, but because I've got a concern about a colleague? We, we get calls from managing partners at firms all the time, Joe. And oftentimes the question is, I'm gonna meet with a lawyer in 10 minutes. What should I say? <laughs> no, we, we That's do. helpful, that's useful. <laughs> and, and, and again, that really goes to the fact that lawyers are lawyers, right? They're not clinicians. And so the, it's really great that they, they're seeking help on ways to have language to intervene. It, it would just be better if they were more proactive about it. Okay, great. So great. we're sort of jumping ahead to the next question. So Peter, Peter Partner is uh, noticing some of these things, maybe not all of these things. And uh, what should what should Peter Partner, the supervising lawyer, uh, do at this point? Joe. All right. Now we're now we're in my area. I feel a little more comfortable. The ground <laughs> is not sliding underneath me so much uh, because there are rules. And rules are tangible, and of course, we love to enforce the rules. So then let's talk about the rules of professional conduct a little bit. Um, there are some things that lawyers on their own need to be thinking about. Um, and also, I'm going to digress for a minute. Um, our rules of professional conduct, which are found at SJC Rule 3, 07, and they are our self-regulating, self-governing rules um, where we as a profession regulate ourselves. Um, the foundational rule of 1.1 talks about competence and a lawyer, I'll just um, actually read it because it is, has the benefit of brevity. Um, rule 1.1 says that a lawyer shall provide competent representation to a client. Comp competent representation requires the legal knowledge, skill, thoroughness and preparation reasonably necessary for the representation. There are comments um, to rule 1.1 that actually eight of them, including maintaining competence. Um, the SJC uh, report on lawyer well-being that I alluded to a few minutes ago um, has talked about the connection between well-being and competence. Um, while the rule and the comments, um, or particularly the comments talk about you know, competence and legal skill and knowledge, and, and it's been expanded now to include um, competence and technology, given the era in which we now practice, that you need to be have a minimal level of competence about technology. There's nothing in the rule of the comment that says that you have to maintain your well-being. There is some discussion nationally about that, and at the ABA um, to date in Massachusetts, we have not said that part of competence um, requires a lawyer to maintain his or her own well-being. But again, this SJC report, which I would um, commend all of you to read talks about the connection between competence and well-being. Also, Rule 1.3 um, talks about diligence. And again, at the benefit of brevity, a lawyer shall act with reasonable diligence and promptness in representing a client. The lawyer shall represent a client zealously, zealously within the bounds of the law. 1.4, which is longer and I won't read it, requires a lawyer to maintain communication with his or her client. When we, we see at the BBO um, and through the Office of Bar Counsel, probably the largest number of complaints overall deal with these first few rules. Um, failures of alleged failures of competence, alleged failures of diligence, alleged failures um, to maintain communication with a client. That those are you know, among the leading causes of ethical issues for lawyers, not just in Massachusetts, but nationally. And many of those issues are caused not by what we would just think of as garden variety incompetence or garden variety laziness or um, you know, putting things off for another day procrastination, but there's often some type of underlying mental health issue behind it. And it may be, it may be as serious as, as a substance addiction issue or a gambling issue, or it just may be, it may be depression, it may be burnout, it may be things going on at home, dealing with a family member who's ill, uh, particularly now in the past year. But 
you know, the, the hypothetical I think is really good because it sort of sets that up. That's the kind of thing that lawyers and law firms see, you know, the associate or even the partner who was, you know, very successful, very diligent, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, all of a sudden um, tasks are slipping, deadlines are missed, the quality of the work product is, is not as sharp as it used to be. Maybe it doesn't trigger those ethical rules, but it may be a warning sign. Um, yeah. So, so keep so the, you know those sort of foundational rules keep in mind. Now, so let me come back from my little detour and get, finally get to Ellen's question about Peter Partner. We're going to jump ahead in the rules to Rule 5.1, which concerns the responsibilities of partners, managers, and supervisory lawyers. And um, I'll read 5.1. Well, I won't actually read them, but I'll summarize them in the interest of time. 5.1a requires a lawyer or a partner in a law firm to maintain reasonable measures to assure compliance with the rules of professional conduct. 5.1b deals with a lawyer with direct supervisory authority over another lawyer. So think of you know, Peter Partner and Ashley Associate working together on a, on a piece of litigation. That's 5.1b. 5.1a is more the partners in a firm making sure that there are measures in place um, to make sure that the lawyers comply with the rules of, of professional conduct. And again, referring back um, to those foundational rules, 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, and 1.4, to make sure that the lawyer is maintaining a level of competence and diligence and communicating with the client. And it is up to the lawyers in the, as the partners and those with management responsibility in the firm to make sure that they are fulfilling their ethical obligations uh, by, by keeping a watchful eye over the associates um, or the junior partners or the people who are of counsel. This rule 5.1 does not apply to equal quote unquote colleagues. So, you know, your friend who's the, you know, the colleague, this co-associate with Ashley wouldn't necessarily have any obligations under rule 5.1 if he's not managing or supervising her, um, but the managers and partners of the law firm um, are, are, are responsible. There's no general duty, again, regarding well-being, and I think this is an important part. If a lawyer is able to, quote unquote, you know, hide his or her issues and the performance, you know, is, 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 is consistent and doesn't trigger any obligations under these rules, there's no ethical obligation under the rules of professional conduct. Um, and I think, Barbara, you can maybe talk more about that, and I think Ellen can talk about that as well, is what do you do if it's not like in this case where maybe it doesn't hit the rules, but you might have some concerns. But anyway, from an ethical standpoint, what you're really thinking about as a managing lawyer or partner is your obligations under rule 5.1 to maintain compliance with the rules. Yeah, let me just add a couple of things about uh, Peter, the situation that Peter is in. Um, uh, and just to, to sort of stress the responsibilities on Peter, uh, 5.1c makes it clear that, that the supervisor um, is, is personally responsible if she or he fails to take remedial action for known uh, conduct that violates the, the rules. Uh, we're not there yet, but if we get there, that is a, a serious responsibility on Peter's um, shoulders. Um, another point, another uh, interesting point for law firms to consider that are in the, the shoes of Peter's law firm is there in comment three, there is a, a note uh, with, with approval that some firms have a, um, a restriction set up under which junior lawyers can confidentially refer ethics issues to a special subcommittee or a special individual who can deal with them um, anonymously and confidentially. And that is certainly a mechanism that you know, could potentially deal with a, a situation, um, a situation like like this, perhaps not as it is now, but as it is uh, developing. Um, a third issue in terms of what uh, options for the law firm. Um, 
many, many medium and large uh, corporations and increasingly many law firms have employee assistance programs under which, which refer uh, lawyers or staff generally um, to essentially referral services to counseling uh, and uh, other assistance programs, social work or, or um, psychologists um, that uh, bypass the, the firm and the legal system entirely. Um, and uh, if the uh, firm has an arrangement with a provider like that, that is another, another option. But I, I think we should move on to the situation where um, uh, Ashley becomes more um, impaired and because that is where the, the rules, the rubber, the partner, the firm and everything else hits the proverbial road. So um, Ashley gets, Ashley's situation becomes more serious. Um, clients start to complain, deadlines are missed. And what clients complain about is the very thing Joe says are, um, is the clients, the bane of most clients. She does not respond to phone calls and emails. And here's a warning, she's hard to reach in the afternoon. You're still Ashley's friend, and you have a Zoom cocktail hour with her, but apparently she has started Zooming well before then, but she does not acknowledge that she has problems at work. So I think we've already talked about the rules of professional conduct that are implicated. You are the friend at that point do you have an obligation to say something to anyone else um, at, at the firm? Um, and this is a rule that, that Joe, I, you know, most, most practicing lawyers in Massachusetts, if they know no other rule, um, they know this rule, the so-called uh, snitch rule, um, 8.3 um, and, um, Perhaps that's unfortunate, but it is true. Um, this is a rule that says um, you have to report a violation of the rules of professional conduct that raise a substantial question of fitness to practice, um, which is a, a fairly high standard. Um, and, um, you know, the test is uh, really, I think, is whether. Um, there is uh, whether um, clients are being um, are being injured, um, and at this point, I'm not sure. As a friend, you have any information that clients are actually being being injured? Um, but uh, uh, I I hesitate to say anything. Um, I serve I serve with Joe on the BBA Ethics Committee, and I. I have to be careful to always agree with everything he says because he is, as you pointed out, general counsel of um, the bar. So I better be quiet now and have him say what the correct answer is to that question. I, I wish my children felt the same way that they have. <laughs> apparently my, my lofty title, such as it is, has, no, no, um, has made no impression on my kids. Um, you know, for all the interest and, and controversy and academic discussion around Rule 8.3 in Massachusetts and, and elsewhere, it, it surprisingly rarely comes up um, in the real world, partly because um, although people threaten it all the time, you know, most of the time we suggest that lawyers wait into, you know, implicate the rule and, until after a matter has concluded so as to not run afoul of seeing as trying to get a, an advantage in litigation or a matter. Um, uh, by using Rule 8.3 or the threat of Rule 8.3. And, you know, it's a pretty high standard if you look, especially in this well-being context, right? Which is, you know, a lawyer under 8.3a, it's a lawyer who knows that another lawyer has committed a violation of the rules of professional conduct. Well, you know, again, and, and you know, you'd have to go through and read dozens, if not hundreds of our cases about 
you know, ne you know, neglecting a matter, failure to communicate, not being diligent, to make a decision whether a lawyer who misses a few deadlines um, has violated the rules of professional conduct. That's that's um, not something that you can know for sure. So I don't know that it necessarily would implicate Rule 8.3 in a well-being context. I think there are other issues that um, that may be raised by this, mostly ones of of civil liability for the firm, which you know I think is also something that we obviously have to consider because in addition to running afoul of the rules of professional conduct, firms have to be very concerned about their civil liability uh, to clients. And if they're facing a situation where a lawyer is missing deadlines or you know, maybe something that's kind of less uh, clear, you know, the quality of the briefing isn't as good, maybe they miss an important research point in an argument and lose a motion because of that, maybe they're not prepared for trial as they should be, et cetera, et cetera, then you're triggering civil liability. And I think that as a lawyer in the firm, whether an associate or an equity partner or a non-equity partner, I think you probably have an obligation there to let the folks know so that you can take appropriate risk management steps to make sure that you remedy the situation, try to mitigate it as, as much as you can if it's already occurred and try to prevent it in the future. I know that the, the malpractice insurance industry, which I used to know fairly intimately, don't quite know as much about it right now, but, but I sort of keep tabs on things, is very interested in this um, because the malpractice insurers understand issues of well-being. It's in their financial interest and not out of a sense of benevolence, but because it's a bottom line issue for the carriers to make sure that lawyers aren't messing up cases <laughs> And if they're messing up cases because of well-being issues, insurers have an interest in, in doing in dealing with that. So I can guarantee you that the large players in the legal malpractice insurance field are very much reading all of these reports about lawyer well-being, and they're talking to people like Barbara, and they're trying to figure out how they deal with it. So I guess long answer again, um, the colleague probably doesn't have an obligation under Rule 8.3 unless it's glaring. Uh, just because the way the world rule is written and the way it's enforced. But I think that there are other considerations for the firm and just for a friend, right, and a colleague uh, to, to, to reach out to people in this situation. So can I just jump in here too for just to clarify a couple things. One of them is, um, my, in my experience, lawyers, lawyers practice life is the last thing to create trouble in their lives, right? So they'll, they will let go of relationships, they'll let go of their health, they'll let go of a lot of other things, but their practice life, they really try to hold on to like the Grim Reaper. It's like they, they don't wanna lose their practice life. So if I was Ashley's pal, if I was Ashley's friend, I would be starting to sort of draw some connections here, connect some dots between what we just read in this little um, in this little scenario about how she's presenting. And I might say to her, based on how she's presenting and, what's, and what seems to be obvious and apparent, that she's putting herself in harm's way. And that if I recognize this, other people will too. And that in terms of what Joe says, the, the partner, the managing partner, it's incumbent upon that person to take action based on liability issues and the malpractice in terms of the overall sort of well-being for the firm and the client. And so Ashley's gonna come up on somebody's radar screen and I as her pal would wanna raise her awareness to that. Um, and that, you know, we've gotten calls at LCL from managing partners about these exact situations where there's been a downward spiral of a, either a senior associate or even a, um, another partner in the firm who's displaying all kinds of inappropriate behavior or decision-making or follow-through. And we've coached them on how to intervene, how to talk with lawyers and associates about um, what to do in, in some ways to remedy this kind of situation. Well, let's see if that's what Peter Partner does. Right. Let me just, before we move oh, on, sure. let's just jump on. You know, I think it's really important, um, and this is more sort of employment practices than anything else, to have a, a system in place, whether you're a small firm of three lawyers or a big firm of 3,000, uh, a regular 
performance reviews that are conducted professionally, that are systematic, um, that are objective, and to do them not just once a year as part of a salary review, but probably twice a year. And this goes not just to law firms, but it goes to government agencies and, and corporations, uh, because that allows you to sort of, you know, keep a, a somewhat close close eye on people, right? Lawyers don't like to do this. We're not we're not in the corporate world. We're not business people. We don't really, you know, that doesn't come naturally to us to think about these business issues. But you really need to think about. Um, a systematic way of doing performance reviews. And again, not just of associates, but of everybody in the firm, including the equity partners, um, because that will give you a check on things and gives you, I think, a venue to start raising these issues. Obviously, you don't want to wait until, you know, five months from now when the next review is scheduled to happen, if there's something that you think needs immediate attention. But, you know, keeping that sort of regular expectation, I think, can be very helpful. Well, Joe kind of stole my thunder because oh. that's sort of the subject of our of our next uh, next uh, set of set of questions. But the once we're dealing with when we're dealing with law firms, lawyers, uh, you know, lawyers with problems, problem behavior in law firms and clients, you know, just like uh, I think what did what did Joe call us a trifecta of presenters, we have sort of a, a three-cornered hat of, of issues and obligations. You know, we have obligations of employees to their employer. We have employees to their clients. We have law firms to their clients. And we have uh, employers to their employees. And they, they don't sync up neatly. Um, and uh, the the uh, there is it is never the case that they are they are neatly balanced and, and work well together um, and uh, generally generally if if um, when law firms start looking at things that way and realizing that there is a, a real tension among those objectives of, of serving clients supporting their their staff and you know, they start to realize the kinds of uh, obligation, the kinds of um, balancing act that they need to follow, they need to conduct in order to be successful. And it is a balancing act. It's not an easy balancing act. So what Joe is talking about is one element of that balancing act, time and energy spent in, in thinking about doing performance reviews and doing them in a, a thoughtful, uh, a thoughtful way, uh, and doing them objectively. Um, lawyers left to their own devices write terrible performance reviews. Um, you know, they're, they're totally subjective. Um, they're not necessarily based on uh, work performed. They're, they're, they can be impressionistic. Um, some lawyers write great ones if they've been trained to base them in, in lawyers' work. Um, but it's a, it's a learned skill. It requires time taken away from remunerative activity. But, but all these obligations and counter obligations need to be balanced out if, if, if law firms are, and balanced out consciously if law firms are gonna work smoothly. But let, let's see how smoothly this law firm handles this Ashley situation. So um, you don't get too far in talking to Ashley and you feel like you have to go to Peter. Peter, the partner, and Peter is disgusted that clients are complaining and the junior associates are not getting good supervision. They say, well, we're retrenching anyway because of COVID and we will just add Ashley to the list of the lawyers we are retrenching. So, um, are there any uh, are there any uh, issues? I mean, Joe has already talked about um, the rules of professional conduct that are implicated for the firm and for um, uh, uh, Peter in their supervisory responsibilities, they may, and, and not only that, their, their um, uh, exposure 
and certainly they are making a decision to lessen their exposure and potentially lessen their Rule 5.1 uh, uh, issues. But um, are they? But they may. Are they letting themselves in for some legal problems in terms of their conduct? And Joe kind of hit the nail on the head there. There's no apparent documentation of any of the concerns that they have had with Ashley's work. Um, and they appear to be giving a false reason for Ashley's termination. They're not really laying her off. There's work for her to do. So arguably Ashley could make an argument that uh, they are laying her off for some illegal reason, some reason other than her, than the stated reason, and that there's no documentation that she did anything wrong, which is not a good position for any employer to be in. On the other hand, on behalf of the law firm, um, and, and that is a, a Particular, particular issue um, that is a particularly uh, unhelpful position for the law firm to be in, given that Ashley can argue uh, accurately at some point that she is suffering from a the disability uh, of uh, mental illness or alcoholism, which um, and which is a protected uh, category. Now that said, um, it is not um, it is not the, it is not illegal to terminate somebody who has a disability, who um, fails to meet the behavioral expectations of one's employer, even if uh, one uh, fails to do so because of the disability. Um, however. Uh, if Ashley acknowledged that she had a disability and wanted to seek treatment, that takes us into the category of reasonable accommodation. So if Ashley said, I, would, I acknowledge that I'm an alcoholic or that I have a, a mental illness and I wanna seek treatment, for example, leave of absence or time off for counseling from the firm, the firm would be obliged to enter an interactive process with her and determine what, if any, accommodations would be necessary, uh, would be, would be uh, possible for them to enter into uh, in order uh, to accommodate her um, and uh, keep her employed and uh, without undue hardship to the firm. Um, and they would be well advised to uh, try to accomplish that, not just for humanitarian reasons, and to the and the reason of preserving a high-performing senior associate, uh, but also uh, for legal reasons. So, uh, any any thoughts on that from uh, panelists? Yeah, I, I have actually a couple thoughts on this. Um, number one, my one of my, my my first ideas here is that anytime somebody leaves the firm, if if when and if all possible, you want them to leave the firm um, in a good way. In this, because you want hopefully down the road this person to be a good resource and a referral source for the firm. So if the if the lawyer, the associate leaves the firm on in a good way, um, feels that the firm has taken good care of them, they're more inclined to refer work down the road, I think. The other piece about this is, if Ashley is, is self-disclosing and she's saying, I have a mental health problem or I have a substance abuse problem and I wanna do something about it, um, and, is, and is able to sort of present this in a way that the, you know, the partnership says, yes, we wanna be helpful to her. LCL is really helpful in helping to organize effective monitoring, treatment, and follow through so that the firm can know, oh, Ashley's following through on treatment. Ashley knows that 
that the firm knows she's following through on treatment, but they know nothing about what the actual um, inner workings of the treatment are. So she has, she has some confidentiality protection in that. LCL is really helpful in being kind of um, working kind of a middle road between the lawyer and the firm in terms of helping them to create good efficacy in terms of treatment and hopefully outcome. And, and the other piece about this if, is if Ashley does have a substance abuse problem, LCL has um, online right now in terms of Zoom, online support group meetings for lawyers to be able to talk about all those kinds of issues and get support from colleagues who are in a similar boat. Um, so I don't have that much to add um, to what Ellen said regarding sort of the rules and the legal obligations. Uh, again, the rules that would be implicated would, would be the ones that I mentioned earlier. Um, I think what Ellen mentioned, I think, is the most important point, which is separate from, you know, ethical considerations, there are civil, you know, obligations and civil um, issues, civil liability issues regarding employment law, both state and federal. Uh, you know, and this happens, I think, and when I was in private practice, I represented a lot of employers. You know, you sort of ignore the problem, ignore the problem, ignore the problem, and then when it blows up in your face, you kind of overreact, um, thereby compensating for your, you know, months or years of, of ignorance, right? So, you know, you, I'm not saying this is this hypothetical necessarily, but you sort of ignore some warning signs, you kind of sweep it under the rug, and then at some point it hits a point and you say, okay, that's it, we got to fire her, or we got to figure out a way to let her go. And that's just, you know, wrong on both fronts, right? You need to be somewhat you know, attentive to these issues when they're sort of at a low boil. And when they become a crisis, or if they become a crisis, hopefully they won't if you've been attentive to them. But if a crisis you know, occurs, you deal with it um, in, a, as I think Ellen said, a humanitarian way, which I think is a perfect way of saying it, um, but also in a way that's gonna um, avoid liability um, for violating um, employment law. Um, and I think that there are real concerns here based on this hypothetical um, about some obligate, you know, some some exposure um, under state and federal law. I mean, I think you know you have to think about two things. I think Ellen touched on these. One is privacy, right? I mean, every, we all have our privacy rights um, as we're as employees or partners of an organization, and there are anti-discrimination laws that somewhat um, circumscribe what a law firm can do or ask um, about a lawyer and either an associate or. Um, a partner um, about this conduct, but I think, I think as Ellen so eloquently said, you know what you've got is, you know, it, it, you have this rubric of a reasonable accommodation, and the reasonable accommodation really allows a law firm to do things like work with the lawyer to get them into treatment and to figure out a way to make this work. Because you don't, you know, you've, the law firms invested a lot of time and money in developing talent, right? And just to be crass about it, and you know, to, to have it end, you know, that way, um, as Barbara said, is, is kind of, it's wasting all that time if you want to think about it from a purely selfish perspective. And, and, and one so, of the things just to, to, to um, I don't know. I don't, follow up with Joe here too, is that my experience too, is that lawyers really are not necessarily good consumers of mental health and substance abuse treatment. So oftentimes really need help on figuring out where is the best place to go and whom is the best person to see for the kinds of issues I have? Um, so I was just checking to see if we had any questions, yeah. but I, I don't, don't see, see any questions in the chat. Did anybody from the BBA, did you guys see any questions? I don't see any um, questions on my end, but we can certainly give the attendant or the attendees a few more minutes to type in their questions if they'd like to ask any at this time. I wonder, Barb, do you guys have any kind of closing thoughts as we you know, wait to finish the questions? I, I think just the, just the importance of understanding that um, in terms of LCL, like who we are, how we function, and the fact that lawyers are entitled to use the program considering your bar dues pay a portion of it. Um, and the fact that we work exclusively with the legal profession. So Ellen made a comment before about some firms have EAP services, which are great. 
but oftentimes are really utilized by um, support staff and not so much by legal staff. And I think this is where we have a really a good corner on the market in terms of the work that we do. I, I mentioned that only because there are some lawyers and who have said to me that they do not want to participate, and I'm not defending this, but maybe you've heard it too. Yeah. They don't want to participate in any program related to the legal profession. They don't want to be on a Zoom call with lawyers. They don't want to be in a uh, discussion group with lawyers. They're terrified it's going to end up getting back to the bar authorities. Um, they don't want to give their real name. You know, they, they, they want to have something that is not going to, somehow they figure their bar card won't come. And, the, you know, if, if, if somebody in the bar finds out about this. And I've heard this from enough people that I have to respect it. And, and if somebody would rather go, even though that, that is not, not logical, I, I, I can understand that level of paranoia. Yeah, and it really just goes to how fearful lawyers are sometimes about you know, being open and exposing themselves to assistance. But this is the other thing just to think about, right? And just to know, is that we help people anonymously all the time. So there are people who will call me, who will say, you know, I think I'm gonna run for um, city council in Cambridge. I don't really wanna give my name, which is like fine, because it's not like we have anything to do with city council in Cambridge, but but it's just, they're, they're just afraid, right? So I think part of what's important to understand is that folks can call um, anonymously and they can say, look, I, I just wanna get some information or, I just sort of want to pick your brain on this. And that's fine. We do I'm calling for a friend. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we attend to these calls and inquiries all the time. It's not a problem. And it's not, I think the main part is it's paid for bar dues, but it's anonymous. There's no reporting line right. from LCL to the BBO or to bar council. So um, we have a question. Oh, it's a comment. Great point about the importance of doing objective, honest performance reviews twice a year. Yeah. Um, yeah, and more often, more often where needed. Um, and, and I would just add to that that, um, you know, report um, reviews um, as appropriate. I mean, if somebody does a great job on something, um, tell them in writing when they do it. If somebody does something in the moment that has issues, don't you know? Tell your partners, oh my God, I don't believe what Ashley just did, which is what often happens. So, you know, put something in writing. Um, it's hard. Lawyers hate doing that stuff, but it's important to, to document. Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. I mean, I think there are online, certainly online tools and professionals who can help lawyers learn how to do performance reviews. Um, which I think is, I think that's your point, Ellen, which is it's really, it's, it should not be impressionistic. It should not be subjective. There should be a, a system in place in order to do this. So it's not just a review of the last few weeks, right? Which is always kind of front of mind for us. Like, oh my God, that brief yeah. that they filed last week was terrible. Forgetting, you know, the other 51 weeks where the performance was adequate. So um, do the performance reviews, I think, but do them um, in a way that's, that's systematic and professional and, and, Get some guidance on it because none of us we all went to law school we didn't well i assume most of us didn't go to business school so yeah, yeah. I, I guess i think we're uh, about to get the hook yeah well thank thanks to both of you this is this was really interesting um any closing words from ellen or barbara before we sign off really yep. glad barbara put up the uh the website yep. and um I think uh, it was great working uh, working with, with both of you, especially Joe, who's you know always. I have to, I have to say that, Barbara, especially Joe, who's always right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> that will get you nowhere. <laughs> That's right. right. Joe's always ready. Right. No. I guess I guess my, my 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 closing thought is if you if you remember nothing from this last hour, just remember LCL those right. three letters. Thanks, Joe. Right. I actually Thanks, do. I, I need to run. 
So okay. thanks, for, okay. thanks for having me on board. Thank you all. Thanks for everybody for attending. And, and thanks, thanks to the uh, staff at the BBA for helping us. Yeah, great job, Devin. Bye. Thank you to all of our speakers and thank you for joining us this afternoon. We certainly look forward to seeing you at future events. Um, have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, Ellen. Bye.